You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Well, as you're grabbing your seats, um, if you were with us last week, If you were with us last week, you remember we talked about something that made religious people uncomfortable. Remember this? Well, I had so much fun making religious people uncomfortable that I decided today, instead of just making religious people uncomfortable, I want to talk about something that's going to make all of us uncomfortable. And I admit it's not something that necessarily all of us would get uncomfortable, but it does seem like most 21st century Americans are very uncomfortable with this idea. And that is that Brady and the Patriots are probably going to take it again today. <laughs> I am a Rams fan, do not get me wrong, but I, I, I have to tell you, I have not been impressed with Todd Gurley showing up. The, he hasn't shown up the last two months. And there is a... Right, see? Preach it. See? It's the first call-out we've ever gotten. In, this is fantastic. This is, All right, truth is, that's not all I want to talk about today, but I am totally open for talking about that. That'll be very exciting. The subject I want to talk about today is actually even more uncomfortable than that reality. It's something that even Patriots fans and those of you who hate football are going to be uncomfortable with, and that is this, the topic of physical manifestational healing that Jesus has the ability to heal us still to this day. The idea that Jesus not only can hear our prayers, but that he actively works through them, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to affect the lives of people around us. See, as I say this, even some of you are going, oh, that is a little odd. See, for many of us, this is an uncomfortable topic. It's not one that we often talk about. And when we do talk about it, when somebody shares a story or when somebody preaches on it from the Bible, we naturally meet the claim with skepticism. We doubt it. We question, how is that even remotely possible? It doesn't make sense. We try and filter it through some scientific lens as a means of ignoring it. We're all for the idea that Jesus can heal relationships right? We're all in on that. We're even all in on the idea that Jesus can heal us psychologically or emotionally, that Jesus deals with those deep wounds that exist in our heart. But as soon as somebody starts talking about how Jesus has cured them of cancer, or how Jesus has taken away their pain, or how Jesus cured them of their cold, we're immediately skeptical. We immediately start going, hold on, how is that even possible? Or we wonder, where's the evidence? Or we say, okay, you say that you just saw a healing, but how do I even trust your credibility? Right? We doubt the person that says it to us, or worse, we doubt ourselves, and we go, well, if they can see it, what, like, what's wrong with me? Why, why can't I see healings in the world? I'll be honest, I think these are fair questions. And I think they're questions that are worth wrestling with, and so we're going to lean into them today. We're going to spend the entire sermon really wrestling with those questions, and here's how we're going to do it. First, we're going to look at two stories out of the Gospel of John. And the reason we're doing that is if you've been with us the last few weeks, we've been using John's Gospel as a means of trying to better understand who Jesus is. And the one thing that becomes abundantly clear from these two stories we're going to read today is that Jesus can heal people. But I want to be clear, that's really not all these stories are talking about. In fact, I'm barely going to scratch the surface of everything in these stories. And so if you're really hungering to get more out of this and you're trying to understand what is John really trying to communicate about Jesus, you're going to have to go on Wednesday night because Pastor Chris is doing a phenomenal job unpacking the stuff that I'm barely touching. And today, more than any other sermon, I'm barely going to touch it. 
But after we read those stories, I want to show you how it's not just Jesus who is supposed to heal, but how healing was something Jesus initiated and he actually expected to carry on into the church today and why that is, what the purpose of healings are. And then finally, we're going to deal with our skepticism. In fact, we're going to spend the vast majority of this sermon wrestling with two big questions, and that is, well, why doesn't Jesus heal everybody, and why don't I see Jesus heal people? Because those, I think, are, are good summation questions. So that's what we're doing, three things. We're going to look at two stories of John's gospel. Then we're going to see how that ministry of healing of Jesus' day was intended to carry on into the future. And then finally, we're going to deal with our skepticism. We're going to talk a lot about whether or not we still can and should pray prayer for healing today. But first, I invite you then, let's open up John's gospel. Let's do this together. Um, we're going to start in John chapter 4, starting in verse 46, and we're going to actually carry over into the beginning parts of chapter, um, chapter 5. It's on page 726 in your pew Bibles. You could pull up on your Bible app through there, or we will be throwing it up on the screen, and so you can just sit there and listen if that's more comfortable for you. But I invite you to listen. And as you're still turning there, let me give you a little preview of what we're going to see. These are two separate stories of healing, okay? The first healing story is about how Jesus heals a boy from over 20 miles away with nothing more than his word. And in the second story, Jesus heals another man within a matter of a few feet. The one thing that is clear from both of these stories is that everybody who saw these healings understood there was no other explanation other than they were a miracle. Everybody who saw them knew, no, this is not normal. This could not have happened. This is supernatural. Everybody who saw them had that exact same opinion. So again, I'm going to start in John chapter 4. Going to read the first couple verses. You can follow along on the screen if you like. John chapter 4. Once more, Jesus visited Cana in Galilee, where he turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose, whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. All right, so I'm going to leave that up there, and I just want you to set the scene here. Okay, so Jesus, we're told, has just arrived in the northern part of Israel, specifically to the region of Galilee, the town of Cana, where, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, he turned the water into wine. And apparently, as he arrives in town, word of his arrival gets out. Everybody hears, hey, this magical healing guy is back into town, and word about him spreads. It spreads so far that even a royal official in the town of Capernaum hears about Jesus. Capernaum was about 20 miles away from Cana, so word is just spreading like wildfire. Well, what happens is when that father hears of Jesus being in town, he sets off in this desperate sprint to beg Jesus to come and heal his child. The sense you get from this story is this guy's tried everything else. He's totally out of options. This is his last-ditch hope to rescue his son. And so he sprints off after Jesus and begs Jesus to help his son. Now, you would think Jesus would be really eager to help, right? That seems like when we talk about Jesus, he's always the one that's down for helping people. He's like, oh, yeah, no problem. I'll do that. But instead, Jesus gives this incredibly awkward response. Verse 48, he says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Now, you would really like me to unpack that. Too bad. Told you I'm not going to do it. You're going to have to come Wednesday to understand that sentence. The point is, even though Jesus says this, the father is undeterred. And so the father responds with this. He simply begs Jesus. He says, sir, come down. Before my child dies, Lord, I don't know what else to do. Please help, help, help. And so Jesus, in compassion, looks at the man and says, go, your son will live. At this, we're told the man took Jesus at his word and he departed. While he was still on the way home, his servants met him with news that the boy was living. When the royal official inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him it was yesterday at one in the afternoon the fever left him. 
The father then realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. At this, him and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. So this is the miracle. Jesus, without even seeing the boy from over 20 miles away with nothing more than his word, no magical incantation, no secret medicine, no like, you know, ritualistic touching, healing miracle, that sort. Jesus just says, your son will live and boom, the son recovers. That's a miracle. Now, as I told you, the next miracle is similar in that it involves a healing, but you'll notice there's a number of differences. I'm going to continue reading John chapter 5. Sometime later, when Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals, there is in Jerusalem, now, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a Jewish festival. Now, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, and one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred, and while I am trying to get in, someone else goes ahead of me. Okay, so the scene has shifted in this story. Jesus is no longer in the northern part of the kingdom. He's in the southern part of the kingdom. He is in Jerusalem, the capital city. For some festival, we're not told what, but during this festival, Jesus decides to just wander around the city. And while wandering around the city, he comes across this pool called Bethesda. And apparently, there was some superstition surrounding this pool that when the waters were stirred up, it had some sort of healing effect. Now, interesting, we actually have good evidence for where this pool is. And scholars believe that the stirring effect was actually due to an intermittent spring that would feed the pool. And so what it means by the stirring of the water is when the water would gurgle up and kind of bubble. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's what it meant by stirring. And so apparently there was this this superstition around this that the first person into the water when it was stirred would be healed of whatever their miracle is or whatever their, their need was. Now, I should tell you, we don't actually have evidence of this superstition. There's no one that wrote down this other than John. John's the only one that tells us about this superstitious pool. But that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. In fact, superstitions are rampant. And if you don't believe me, in about three hours, go to a Super Bowl party and just watch. Okay? People have all sorts of ridiculous superstitions that you may convince them all you want that they're not true, but it doesn't matter to them. They're believing it. And that seems to be the case with the people that surrounded this pool. There was this deep feeling that if they could just get in the water, if they could be the first person in, they would be healed. The problem for this specific guy, he wasn't able to move on his own. He needed somebody to help put him into the water. And so he has to sit there among all the other sick people. And you can imagine, there, there's coughing, there's moaning, there's groaning, there's, there's just all this complaining that's going around, and there's this, this great number of people sitting around the pool, and they're just sitting there waiting, waiting for the first sign of the waters to gurgle, the first bubble to pop up. And then, can you imagine, as soon as somebody sees that first bubble, what the chaos would have been like? What kind of, this would have just been an insane sight. Oh, the bubble! Get in! Get in! Rush it! And then they're like pushing each other out of the way. They're stepping over each other. The first person in is going to be it. It would have been a chaotic scene. And then there's this guy who's struggling with all his might to get in and he can't do it. And we don't know how long the guy's been laying there. Weeks, months, years in desperation, hoping for just that one moment when he'll be able to get into the waters and have healing. Day in and day out. And then Jesus walks up. And I want you to realize, it's in this sea of sick people, for whatever reason, Jesus identifies this one guy. 
And he walks up to him and he asks what seems to be the dumbest question on the planet. Uh, do you want to get well? I mean, and if you've read the Gospels before, you know Jesus has a knack for these kind of questions that seem incredibly simplistic until you actually go and answer them. And I will tell you, there's been a lot of speculation as to why Jesus asked this question, and the truth is, we're just not sure. Was Jesus psychoanalyzing this guy and really asking, are you sure you want to get well? I mean, are you just doing this for the attention's sake, or are you really hoping to get something out of this? Or is Jesus believing that you can't help people that don't want to first help themselves? Honestly, we don't know. We don't know. Anything would be speculation for me to be able to tell you what it is. But what we do know from this story is that Jesus only asked this question to one guy. In the sea of sick people, he only asked it to one guy. And what else is really interesting, did you notice? The guy doesn't answer his question. He never says, yes, I want to be healed. All he does is he goes on rambling about this superstition and how unfortunate it is that he can't achieve it. It's really interesting. But then Jesus says this, he looks at the man and he says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured and he picked up his mat and he walked. Instantly, 38 years of being able to do nothing but lie around are instantly reversed. And this guy has strength in his leg muscles, strength in his ankles, strength in his knees, in his hips. He has the, he's probably always had the upper body strength to be able to pull himself around. But now, all of a sudden, he's got this strength. And so you can just imagine he's like rolling over. And he's pulling himself up. And I don't know, I don't know if he like was a, a full-on marathon sprinter after this, like he was in the best shape of his life when this happens, or if this was more like a toddler learning to walk, like he stands up and then he falls back on his butt, and then he stands up and he walks, or he does the toddler waddle thing. I don't know. But what we do know from this story is that everyone who saw it happen knew instantly there is no possible explanation for how this could have happened beyond the fact that this was some supernatural miracle. Everybody that saw it knew it happened. Now, as I mentioned before, there is so much more in these stories that I am barely touching on. In fact, if you just keep reading in this story, you're going to realize this healing set off a firestorm. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, both on the day he chose to do it and what he told the man to do with that mat. Jesus knew full well what he was doing, and he was setting off a debate. I'm not going to touch it at all. And I'm not even going to touch that stuff I told you in the first story about why Jesus gives that awkward response. You have to go Wednesday night. Pastor Chris will do a much better job kind of unpacking that and getting into that. What I want to focus on is the one thing that is abundantly clear from this passage, and that is Jesus heals people. Jesus has the ability with nothing more than his word to heal people. And this is quite incredible. And you also have to remember, it's not just this one story, right? There are tons of examples of this in the Gospels, dozens of stories where Jesus is going around heal people. In fact, it, it, as you read through the Gospels, this becomes the summary statement of the Gospels. Jesus went around teaching and healing. It's like the, the two are always together. What was Jesus known for? Teaching and healing. This wasn't just something he did on a rare occurrence. This was something he did all the time. This was his thing. Everybody knew, oh yeah, Jesus, he's the healer guy. He's the teacher, oh yeah, and he heals people. Everyone knew this about him. It was commonplace for him to do it, and it makes sense why he would heal. And the reason it makes sense is this. If Jesus is the Messiah, as we've talked about the last few weeks, if Jesus is the Messiah, the guy who has come to make things right in the world, and as Messiah, if, as Jesus claims, he is the one who brings the kingdom of God, if he is the one that brings the kingdom, then it makes sense that he would have some sort of evidence for that claim. It would make sense that he would be able to show, yes, see, I am bringing the kingdom. What I am doing is an example of the kingdom, and that's exactly it. See, all of these miracles were signs or glimpses or previews of the full coming kingdom. 
These miracles were not just miracles in and of themselves. They always pointed to something beyond themselves. And in fact, that's why John doesn't call them miracles. Did you catch what John calls them? John says they're signs. Signs always point to something beyond themselves. A great example of this is nobody goes to Disneyland, sees the sign, Disneyland, and walks away thinking, I've been to Disneyland. That's pathetic. Now, can you imagine if this is how we treated bathroom signs, how disgusting the world would be? Oh, I saw the sign. I went to the bathroom. That was it. No. Everybody knows that signs point to something beyond themselves. And in this case, the same is true. All of these miracles were signs that pointed to a greater reality beyond the horizon. All of these pointed to a future event that was about to come. We're just getting glimpses or previews of them. And so what is this greater reality they were pointing to? The fullness of the kingdom. See, this is technical theology talk, but you can't help but notice when you read through the Gospels, Jesus talks about the kingdom is here, but at the same time, it's not yet fully here. We live in this, this now and not yet state where we get glimpses of it now, but at the same time, we know we're not experiencing the fullness of the kingdom. Because the fullness of the kingdom, as the gospel writers tell us, as the prophets tell us, as the book of Revelation tells us, when the fullness of the kingdom comes, it will be a time when there is no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more death. All you have to do is turn on the news to realize, yeah, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. But we do see glimpses of the kingdom. And especially in Jesus' ministry, when he heals people, he's giving us a foretaste of what that is. He's pointing to the fact that, yes, the kingdom is here. And he's saying, but it's not yet here. It's pointing. More than that, signs have a tendency to not just point to something, but signs have a tendency to reveal something about the someone doing the sign. In this specific case, Jesus is the one who not only initiates the kingdom work, but he's also the Messiah. He is the guy. But as Jesus makes clear, as we read in the rest of the Gospels, it wasn't just something for Jesus to do. Jesus expected his disciples to be able to go and do the exact same thing he does. In the other Gospels, you will read accounts where Jesus first sends out his 12 disciples. Hey, boys, go ahead and go take care of this. And then he sends out 72. Okay, go ahead. More the merrier. Let's go do this thing. And then, after Jesus ascends, he says, when my Holy Spirit shows up, I want all of you to go out and do this. And so the, the, the rest of the New Testament is full of stories of the early church going out and doing these incredible healing ministries. It's profound. But it's not even just in the Bible where we hear stories of these healings. I mean, you know, history is full of miraculous stories of people being healed in ways that we can't ever fully understand or explain. And it's not even just history. This isn't like distant history. There are people in this congregation who can point to the fact that, you know what? In my family, in my church, in my friend group, we can point to healings that took place. Things that happened that we just simply don't have an explanation for, that doctors cannot nail down and say, this is the reason why this happened. We have those stories. We know they happen. And this shouldn't surprise us. If we are continuing to live in this state where we are in the kingdom now, but not yet fully here, we should continue to see glimpses of the kingdom breaking through. And Jesus tells us that when the Holy Spirit works through us, his goal is to show us, to encourage our faith, to point us to this reality that is yet to come, that is on the horizon, that his kingdom is coming, but he is also still at work today. And so because of that, and I want to make this statement as bold and uncomfortable for you as humanly possible, so buckle up if you can. Because of that, we should continue to both pray for healings, and even more dramatically, we should expect to see them happen. We should now, I, I, I'm trying to make this statement as, as bold and awkward as possible because I want you to be like, well, hold on. 
I want you to start thinking about those doubts. I want you to start thinking about, okay, what is your reason that you are resistant to being able to embrace that reality? What is the thing that comes to mind when I say you should pray for healing and expect to see healing? What is that visceral feeling you have inside of you that makes you want to go, yeah, but? What is it for you? As I reflected on this for the last few weeks, I think that for me, there's these two great questions that continue to come up. When somebody makes this claim that we should expect to see healing and that we should continue to heal, is there's two big ones. The first is this. If Jesus continues to heal today, then why don't I see it? Why don't we see it? Where is it? Where is it happening? What, what am I missing? And the second question If Jesus has the ability to heal people, why doesn't he heal everyone? Why does he say no? We've all prayed for this. Why doesn't he say no? And obviously, those aren't the only two questions, right? As I asked the question, I I wanted you to begin to think, but do your doubts or your questions or your skepticism fall at least into one of those two camps? Well, why don't I see it? Or why doesn't he heal everybody? I mean, as I reflected on it, I felt like those were where my doubts kind of went. So I want to unpack those two things. I want to spend the rest of the sermon really trying to understand those two poles. But I want, I want to start with this one. I want to start with the fact that Jesus doesn't heal everyone. And I call that a fact because we've all experienced this. We've all had moments where we have prayed for somebody or we've heard of somebody praying for somebody else and they didn't heal. And you have to wonder, well, what's up with that? Was it due to a simple lack of faith is it that they didn't know how to ask God properly? They didn't actually say the right magical formula, right? They didn't use the magical word and therefore God didn't respond to them properly. Well, no. So there's a few things here that we can unpack. The first is this. We need to realize that in the scriptures, there is nowhere, nowhere does God promise to heal everyone. That's just not in there. And in fact, in the story we read today, we see a perfect example of this. Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda, and there are dozens of sick people laying around, and he doesn't heal them all. In fact, he seems to make his way through the crowd to get to just one guy. One guy. There's tons of other people just as desperate for a miracle, just as desperate to sit out in the hot sun all day waiting for the first gurgle, so they can rush into the pool and Jesus ignores all of them and goes to just one guy. Now, we could speculate again as to why this is. Why would Jesus do this? But we just don't know. The truth is we will never know. The best answer I can give you as to why God heals some people and doesn't heal everybody is this. And I know to some of you this is going to sound like a total cop-out, but I want you to listen to it. The very best reason is because he is God and he knows best. Why does God not heal everybody? He is God and he knows best. As I said, I know that sounds like a cop-out. It sounds like churchies that you could just kind of ignore the tough problems by just putting a cute bumper sticker on top of it. But here's the thing. If you go and dig into the scriptures, specifically if you go back to the book of Job, you realize that's essentially the answer God gives Job. Do you remember that story? Everything goes wrong in Job's life. And at the end of the story, Job is so desperate. He's begging God, why would you do this? What are you up to? Why? And God never comes out and straight says, well, here, Job, let me explain the whole thing. And the reason is this. God responds to Job, Job, You can't even understand the basic stuff of life. Job, can you explain to me how creation popped into existence out of nothing? Job, can you explain to me how a bumblebee flies? Job, can you tell me what your spouse actually means when they say, we don't have to celebrate Valentine's Day this year, it's okay? Job, if you can't answer those super simple questions, then how are you ever going to understand the complexities of the decisions that I make? See, church, we may never understand why God does what God does. We're not God. 
And we need to just trust that he knows what is best. See, while we may not ever understand why God says yes to some prayers and no to other prayers, what we can trust and what we lean into when we do pray for healing is we lean into what we know to be true of the character of God. We press into who God has revealed himself to be, the things that we can grasp. And so if you're trying to understand, okay, well, who is God? What is God like? The clearest expression of it, Jesus says it himself, is to look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know how God thinks, if you want to know the character of God, look at Jesus. And so stop and think about that. What do we know to be true of Jesus? Number one, he's good. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are, atheist or anti-Christian or whatever it is. When you look at Jesus, everybody recognizes Jesus is good. Christians, not so much. But Jesus, he's a good guy. More than that, Jesus seems to be full of compassion and love. Jesus also seems to have a plan. Every time Jesus does something, it's thought out and it's intentional. And more importantly, you can argue, Jesus seems to know what he's doing. And so if that's the case, it's reasonable for us to say we can trust him, even if we don't understand him. We can trust that even if Jesus says no to our prayers, it's because he knows what is best. Just as an aside, Sometimes, and I would put it probably more often than not, we don't know what to pray for. And more often than not, we don't pray for the right things. We don't always pray for what is best. One of my favorite examples of this comes from that movie, Bruce Almighty. Remember that? With uh, uh, Jim Carrey and Morgan Freeman's God, because he's got the voice, um, and the body. I guess that's how I think of God. But... That got real personal and weird, and nobody's talking. Uh, that was... <laughs> All right. Well, I'll see a psychologist after this. Moving on. Morgan Freeman gives Jim Carrey's character this, this ability to be God over this small, select area. Remember this? And so he has to deal with all the prayer requests that flood in just from this one area. And he gets so overwhelmed, he just puts all prayer requests on auto-reply, yes. Remember this? And the funniest thing happens is everybody wins the lottery. It's just all-out chaos. I mean, countering prayers are constantly countering each other. Like, the truth is, we don't know what to pray for. We don't always have the best intentions in mind. We don't know what is best for ourselves. Another good example of this straight out of Scripture is from the Apostle Paul himself. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul tells of a time when he prayed for this thing he describes as this thorn in his flesh. And Paul tells us that multiple times he prayed for God to take this thorn in his flesh away. And when God made it clear that he wasn't going to take this thorn in the flesh away, Paul did something that very few of us actually ever stop and think to do, and it's quite brilliant. Paul stopped and said, okay, God, what is the benefit then of me having this? If you're saying no, there must be a reason, so what is it? And in Paul's specific case, as he reflected on why God kept saying no to this prayer, Paul realized it's because it made him more dependent upon God. Now, that's not always going to be the case, but that was exactly what Paul says was his reason. And for that, instead of griping and complaining about this ailment that he had, every time that ailment came up, Paul found reason to give glory to God for it. Because he saw it as a reason of being dependent to God. Another example of this, and many of you in this room can testify to this, is when it comes to making end-of-life decisions. I've been in the room and, and had these conversations with a number of you. I don't think these conversations ever get easy, but many of you have been in that room and, and your loved one is in a coma, they're on a feeding tube, or they're on a ventilator, and you've been praying for weeks or months or years for them to work themselves off, only for you to realize you know what, sure, maybe they wake up from the coma, sure, maybe they work themselves off the, the feeding tube or the ventilator, but the quality of life that they will then enter into, it's, it's just not what that person would ever want. And so you realize the better prayer 
isn't just for them to work themselves off the ventilator. The better prayer is for them to be released of all of this medical equipment, this life-saving stuff, this life support, and be allowed to released into the arms of Jesus. Because if we remember, the whole thing is this. When we see healings today, healings today are just a glimpse of a far greater reality to come. The healings are not the thing we get excited about. The healings just point to something on the horizon that we are looking forward to. See, even if God answers our prayers for healing, even if God protects us from illness or saves us or does something crazy, unavoidably, every single one of us will then eventually die. A great example of this is Lazarus. We're going to talk about him in a couple weeks. But Lazarus, I don't know if you ever stopped to think about this, we always get so excited about the miracle that Jesus has the ability to raise Lazarus from the dead. And it is pretty epic. I mean, the guy was dead for four days. Long dead. And out of nowhere, Jesus comes, boom, he's back to life. But do you realize a few years later, Lazarus had to die again? His family had to go through the exact same feelings of loss. So yes, the miracles are amazing. Miracles are phenomenal. Miracles are intended to happen today as a means of encouraging our faith. But the miracles aren't the end-all, be-all. Miracles are merely a sign or a glimpse of a far greater reality to come. And that's what we cling to. See, church, what we cling to in a faith, beyond knowing that our God is good, beyond knowing that our God is, knows what is best and is worth trusting, the one thing we cling to more than anything else is knowing that Jesus has defeated death. And that death is not the final end, but death is just the next step that leads to the even greater reality. Death is often the means by which we enter into the fullness of the kingdom. And so sometimes, yes, it is awesome for God to answer our prayers, and we should celebrate that, and we should get excited, and we should acknowledge that that is God answering our prayers. But sometimes it's better for God to say no because he has a better plan. He is pointing us to a far greater reality. So yes, God will always answer our prayers. Always. Just not always in the way we want. Okay, so those are a few, a few, and I, I want to be said, that was not a comprehensive list of why God doesn't answer all of our prayers or why God chooses to heal some people and not others. We could talk about this all day long. But there's at least a few things for you to be able to understand. Those are intellectual, solid reasons for us to be like, okay, that makes sense. But that doesn't answer the fact of, well, why don't we continue to see those types of healings happen today? Where are they? I mean, look, in the Bible, when we read these stories, these were dramatic. People saw them. I mean, this was a guy's son was on the brink of death, and Jesus, with nothing more than his word, changed the kid's life, took the kid's fever away, pulled him back from the brink of death. And then the other example, in front of a crowd of people, this guy who's been done nothing but lay on a mat for 38 years is instantly able to walk? Where's that stuff? Where are those? Why do we not see those types of miracles today? Well, here's the thing. I want to argue, as we've already talked about multiple times in this, story, in this sermon, those types of healings happen all the time. So I think the better question is not why don't we see them. The better question is why don't we see healings today as miracles? Why are we so quick, or why are we so resistant, why are we so hesitant to ascribing an action of God in the world? What is it in us that is so resistant to that? Because I just want you to think about this. You've all heard stories, but let me just point to a few examples that have literally taken place in our community within the last year or so. Do you remember, this was about a year ago, Pastor Tran's wife, Bai, it's actually two years ago that she was diagnosed, Pastor Tran's wife, Bai, the, the Vietnamese pastor, his wife was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. Doctors were completely hopeless in the whole thing. Bai's been in remission for like a year. 
Full remission. That's crazy. That's a miracle. And it's not just by my niece, Quinn. My niece, Quinn, has just overcome leukemia with the help of some incredible doctors. That's a miracle. In the first service, he was sitting here this morning. Phil Irvin just, like literally last week, had his cancer obliterated. I, I, it's, it's insane. Drew Hunhausen, whose parents are sitting right here, is a walking miracle. I remember when I was a kid, Drew and I grew up together. I remember having to come into this room and the pastors being like, you know what, it's possible we're going to lose Drew, but we're going to pray for him. And I remember as a little kid, what were we, 9, 10 when that happened? Sitting in this room and people praying because the doctors had no other options. And Drew's walking around today. Drew's testifying to this. He's made a career of this. Speaking about God's miracle in his life. Look, I acknowledge many of the miracles that I've even talked about. You can write off as medical advancements, right? As scientific uh, intelligence grows, we just have more answers so we know what's going on. Yeah, you could probably say that in Phil's case or in my niece Quinn's case. But if you talk to Drew's parents or, or, or you talk to Bi, they'll tell you it wasn't because of doctors. The doctors didn't have the answers. The reason they are with us today is a clear response to prayer. So again, I ask you, why is it that we are so, why is it that we have the hardest time recognizing miracles for what they are today? Why are we so quick to brush off these healings as though they aren't actually God's work in the world? Another way of phrasing the question, why are we so hesitant or resistant to pray for God to act as he has revealed himself in Scripture? If God says he will answer our prayers, why don't we ask? Those are some hard questions, right? It's not as much about why don't we see them as much as the real question is do we want to see them? Or why do we have such a hard time acknowledging them? Look, I, I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just cut to the chase. I'm going to tell you, I don't know. I don't know why that is. I don't know why we have such a hard time doing it. I don't know. I've been reflecting on this question for weeks now. It's probably what's made this sermon so difficult to write. There's no simple answer. The truth is all of us have our different reasons, right? Some of you, it's because you have learned to put all of your faith in science and you believe that one day science will give us all the explanations and we're afraid of ascribing some sort of response or action to God because we're afraid that one day science is actually going to answer it. There's going to be some journal published and be like, well, this is actually how leukemia is cured. Others of us, I think it's because we have a, a, a lack of faith we, we, we struggle to believe that God would actually listen to us, or we struggle to believe that, that what actually happened in here happened. As I said, we're all for the psychological, emotional healing, the relational healing, but the physical stuff, we, we take more of the Jefferson approach. We're just going to cut those part out of the Bible. <laughs> Others of us, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we're afraid of God saying no to those deep prayer requests in our life so we just don't ask it's a means of protecting ourselves a means of making sure we don't get hurt any more than we already are as i said i, I don't know what your answers are i don't know what your reasons for doubting i don't know what your issues are why it's hard for you to recognize miracles today or healings today as god acting in the world i don't know why you are so hesitant or resistant to pray boldly i don't know what your thing is the one thing i have come to understand is all of us have different answers for this and there is no one answer that i'm going to be able to give you i can't argue myself out of this and i'm a good arguer if this thing ever doesn't work out, I'm going to go into law, because that just sounds fun. Now, I, I, I mean, honestly, think about this. There's no one argument anybody could give you. 
I can't give you an example. I can't give you a story. I can't give you a logical reason to embrace the fact that Jesus still heals today. So I'm going to do something different today. I'm going to steal a word from Jesus. I'm going to just quote the guy. I'm going to encourage you to come and see. I'm going to encourage you to come and see if Jesus still heals. I'm going to encourage you to come and see if Jesus will still answer your prayers. I'm going to encourage you, in other words, to step out in faith and start praying boldly. I'm going to encourage you today, starting now, start praying for sick people. I'm going to encourage you, starting right now, start praying for those people in pain. Start praying for people who are having ailments that are bothering them on a regular basis. Start praying for people that doctors have completely written off. Start praying for them. Guys, let's start praying for God's kingdom to actually be seen here on earth. We're told in Scripture that that's what it happens. In other words, let's just start asking some big questions, and then here's what we're going to do. Let's see what happens. Let's just sit back and see what happens. What's God going to do? Look, I'm not saying let's put God to the test. Quite the opposite, in fact. Rather, I'm saying let's take God at his word. This is who God has revealed himself to be in Scripture as it is. I mean, how many times have you read stories about how to pray in the Bible, and it repeatedly says God not only listens to our prayers, but longs to answer them? I mean, how many times has Jesus taught on this idea of prayer, and as Jesus teaches on prayer, he describes our Father in heaven like a good earthly father who desires to give good gifts to his child. And Jesus says, if, your child, if you give good gifts to your kids here on earth, what makes you think your heavenly Father wants to hold back good gifts from you? And more importantly, this, this healing ministry that Jesus initiated, it wasn't just for him. It was intended to continue to encourage us. It was intended to continue to be something we see. It was intended to be a means of glimpsing the future reality of the coming kingdom. It was a means of continuing to testify to the fact that God is active and present in the world. But if you don't ask, how are you ever going to see? So again, I encourage you, pray big prayers. Pray things that you can't ever justify on your own. That's why I'm saying, why don't you start identifying? Why don't you just start identifying those people that God can't heal? That the doctors can't heal, I mean. And let's just see what happens. Start praying for your coworkers. Start praying for your children. Start praying for your neighbors. Start praying for whoever. Pick up that bulletin and flip over to that sheet where you're going to see all those sick people Start praying. Let's just see what happens. Because here's the worst thing that could happen. You realize this? Nothing happens. The worst thing that happens if you start praying boldly for people is nothing happens. Things stay the status quo. And if anything, if you're doubting, if you're having issues, that's a means of being able to justify your doubts. But if Scripture's true, if God does promise to answer some of our prayers, God never said, I mean, going back to this, He never said He's going to answer everything. But if we trust that God is good, if we trust that God will answer some of our prayers, can you imagine the potential impact this would start to have in our communities? So say you just start praying for your coworkers. When somebody gets sick, they come in with a cold, or they have a family member with certain issues, or whatever it is, and you just go, you know what, I will pray for you. And then you actually go back to your office, and you actually pray for them. How many times do we say we're going to pray, and we actually don't pray? But let's say you actually did it. You went back, and you started to pray for them. And then you followed up with them later, and you find out, you know what, they actually got better. And you go, well, praise God for that. I was praying for that. Just imagine how that's going to start changing some of the conversations around the office. Imagine how this is going to start changing some of the conversations you have with your children who are struggling to believe when you start actually praying some big prayers and seeing them being answered. What are they going to do with that? 
At a certain point, every child is rebellious. I know I am myself. But at a certain point, there's an amount of evidence that you just can't start to deny. And they're going to be like, okay. Imagine what this would look like in our church services if every single Sunday you came in knowing, you know what, if you had an ailment or you had a family member, you brought them to church because you knew we would pray for them because we believe God actually works through prayers. Imagine what that would do. I admit, some of you are already beginning to think, I don't want to imagine that. Because it freaks you out. (laughs) It's kind of weird. We're becoming that loopy church down the street. Right? This is is kind of pushing some of our boundaries. And we go, I don't know if I actually want to see that. I'm content with my intellectual faith. I'm content with relieving my, my my relationships to Jesus. I'm content with dealing with this emotional baggage. But that physical stuff, I'm I'm not willing to go there. I'm not willing to put myself out there. I'm not willing to risk praying for that. Okay. If that's you, that's okay. But you need to realize if that's you, then you can't continue to ask the question, why don't I see God work? You can't continue to ask the question, why don't I see God do miracles? You got your answer. You don't want to. It makes you uncomfortable. You're not willing to actually step out and do it. Look, praying big prayers is a risk. Asking God to enter into those areas of deepest hurt in your life are a risk. Faith is a risk. But you know what else is a risk? When Jesus tells you your son will live when he's on the brink of death and you've done everything else you can to try and save him and you have to walk away going, okay. You know what else is a risk? When in front of everybody else, Jesus says, I know you haven't walked in 38 years, get up. Try. Faith is risky. Praying big prayers is risky. You have to decide, is it a risk worth taking? Let's pray. Father, we give you honor, glory, and praise today. For you are a good God, a God who loves us and a God who cares for us. God, we have to confess our own biases, our own frustrations, our own lack of faith at times that prevents us from being able to trust you. Lord, we long to see your kingdom come on earth. We long to see you have your will among us. So as we even sit, as we continue to worship, as we continue to pray, we ask that you would bring to mind those people in our lives who we need to pray for. Give us the boldness to pray big prayers. In Jesus' name.